Jeff, thank you for coming. Well, uh, it's a, first of all, it's a pleasure to be here and a uh, pleasure to listen to these presentations. I'll start off with some uh, sort of disclaimers, really. Is it, uh, I'm, I'm not an academic. I mean, people keep wanting to pigeonhole me as academic, but I'm not a, actually I'm not an academic. Um, I do other stuff. Um, but um, there we are. So I just say that I'm sort of unlinked. Um, I, I, but um, it, through mentions of hobbies and things, I suppose public health is a bit of a hobby for me, really. Um, and I, I'm also, in terms of food, it's interesting that um, uh, I sort of approach food a bit differently in not part of a kind of food tribe. And in a sense, what I've been writing and thinking about is trying to do things as not being tribal and thinking about food, but looks, look at issues of continuity between various drivers in society. And this will hopefully come out in my talk. So... Um, the title begs three questions. If you, had, if everybody in the audience had read the book that I'd written, um, then I'd do a different presentation. As I'm assuming that, uh, well, maybe three people here have read it, um, but I, I'll have to say what ecological public health means. So what I'm going to do is going to duck. The title begs three questions. What's meant by the British food system? Which, well, that's that's a big that's a big topic all in itself. Um, so I'm going to duck that. Um, and then we have to say what public health is. I mean, before I can talk about ecological public health, I really need to talk about public health. In fact, and then I am engaging in traditions of thinking about what that is. So what I'm going to do is discuss the meaning, uh, or if you like, the traditions of public health, at least within the Anglo Anglosphere, um, and consider the four main, what I call, conventional traditions or models of public health. And then I'll just describe and define ecological public health, how it differs, and uh, the, the, the way we set up our book, which is to look at this thing called societal transitions, which is basically trying to think about society in the long term, and how the long term projects into the future. So there is a kind of, a bit of a long durée about that in terms of our thinking. Um, and then I'm going to reflect upon what we think comes out of this as what the British food system or any food system through the prism of understanding presented by the model of ecological public health in our version of it. So I'll say that although we've used the term, we think it, ecological public health builds on other people writing in this tradition. There's a whole number of them, uh, although they've not used the term, they've used similar to it. So I'm not counting this as original, although our perspective on it is possibly original. So just to say, I mean, in order just to park about the questions that are the food system for the moment, um, what are food system problems? Let's not describe the system, let's describe some of the problems. And this is a piece that Tim and I did in public, uh, uh, in Well Nutrition uh, a little while ago, where we tried, to, did a very quick piece of looking at um, uh, what were the food system problems in relation to the perspective that we have in ecological public health. And of course there's many of them, and this is how they appeared to us. The diet and nutrition transition, it's an interesting use of the word transition, That's, uh, the terminology is from Barry Popkin, uh, but we, we, uh, you know all about what that is, I don't need to say anything about Food security, insecurity likewise, the fact that you have food transitions on the long, on the, on, on the other hand, the hunger which would be declining is now increasing again. You've probably followed the international evidence, but there is evidence in the UK as well is that the economic downturn, and probably in the States, some of the data, the economic downturn has, has significantly affected people's purchasing choices. Um, I could look at the data, but again, that's sort of a, a detail. Distorted food markets, not just distortions from subsidies, but in human needs, in human perceptions about what we want, what our demands are, you know, what we think real food is, you know. All those conceptions are the ones which are given to us that we walk into, like a suit of clothes and put on. Um, and then the environmental impacts, or ecological impacts, and that's an interesting use of the word, that's what we mean by environment, where the word comes from, not uh, too much to go into perhaps today. Obviously, climate change appear, appears very prominent, 
but what we call a web of threats. Trying to look, again, we talk about the long term, but also continuity. Um, water, land use, forest cover, soil fertility, biodiversity, the list goes on. It's all chartable, fairly exactly. Biodiversity, big topic. It's not so easy to chart, um, but we have quite a bit of reasonable data. And then the issue of employment. Here we have, you know, we actually feed in this country a high proportion uh, of uh, the products we give is a higher proportion of the diet than it was 100 years ago in terms of what farmers produce. And it does that with less than 1% of the population uh, working in primary production. Now, I know this. I actually run a farm. So, I, I mean, although I didn't count myself particularly as a food person, I know about what food production looks like. I know how the buying and selling of food and so on. This is something I'm familiar with. And it's a peculiar world. I'm seeing uh, a, a farm, our farm, which once upon a time was economically viable with 15 people, 20 people at one point, uh, now is down to two or three. Right? It's, in, it's interesting. And that's over a period of 40 years. That's the shrinkage. Now, that's a very interesting story. And then energy reliance. And now I'll be talking a, quite a bit about that today because it, the issue of energy, which is central to the food system, and of our own energy is something I'll try to hook together. And I'll hook that up partly. I gave a talk at the Royal Society of Medicine on Friday on the energy transition. So I'm going to give a kind of more of a heightened interest to that because I was writing this at the same time. So what is public health? We use these terms. It's a, I think it's a problem of perception and, and definition. It's, it's about 20 years ago I was involved in an organisation called the European Public Health. Uh, alliance, and there were a group of people wanted to rename the organisation, and they said to me, "Well, you know, you the words public health are a British tradition, and there are other traditions." Well, actually, you're right. There are many traditions of public health. The Germanic tradition, the French tradition, whatever, comes from different places, different starting points. But actually, I'm saying that public health only means what the words mean: the health of the public. And I start off with that principle. In fact, that's the principle, we'll see in a moment, which is contained in the original le legislation. There's no spin on it. It simply means the health of the public. That is it. Right. It's a blank page. It is about health. You can invest as much as you want into thinking about what health means, but that's the starting place. Um, and yet, of course, we have... I went to a, a presentation uh, by a colleague... Uh, sociologist who works for NICE, and he's, he was saying, well, public health, it's, you know, it is about this, and we respond in that. So he felt the sociologist, which he was trying to go against, this um, biomedical tradition, which is dominant. That, to me, like neoliberalism, is a strong story. Right? It's not a true story. It's illusionary. Right. Public health is always something to be uncovered and born again because it's dealing with the, the human situation. So I'll, we can talk about that. And then I was going to say, well, actually, as an example, how the story of biomedical advance, how biomedicine thinking has moved into the centre stage of public health, to look at the attacks on people like uh, McEwen and Ivan Illich, uh, McEwen on the inside read the many attacks and if you're interested in that read in our book uh, about that and, and in fact people like McEwen comes out of um, explicitly so um, the, the uh, um, what can I say a Malthusian style of thinking an eco ecological sense of thinking of looking at a place limited by resources populations by limited by the available nutrition it's sort of carried on also by Robert Fogel's work. It takes an old track which becomes problematic. But I'm saying that here we actually have to have a much richer understanding about what public health is. So I just give you, and remember this is a British issue, but it's not so different in many countries, um, of the discussion of the last few years in this country, of returning public health to local government. That's the language that's happened in this country over the last four or five years with the Conservatives putting, as they say, public health back into local authorities. Um, in fact, this is a kind of illusionary enterprise. Public, local authorities, the history of public health, were actually created as public health bodies. 
and um, that the expression um, a public health doctor in this country is actually new since the late 80s. Right? Before that, they were called uh, community physicians. Right? And then before that, they were called um, medical officers of health. Right? So it's an attempt to reinstate, in a, in a sense, a biomedical view which had been dominant for much of the 20th century. But um, if we take it back um, to the mid-century, when what we call public health first arises, there is not a profession called public health. Right? The language of public health only really starts up in the 20th century, the early 20th century. Before that, there's a variety of terms, sanitarianism and so on. You'll know those terms, hygiene, particularly in France. You know. So anyway, um, if you look at the perceptions of public health, uh, they were dealing with the environmental perceptions of the day in, mid, uh, in the mid-19th century, particularly the sanitary issue, more so in Britain than in other countries. And it was through um, the, the, the medical side of it was the le actually it was undeveloped. And you have questions of food security, sustainability, population growth, food uh, affordability. It's interesting if you look at one of the kind of movers and shakers in, um, in public health at the time, of course, Edwin Chadwick, he had these big schemes for shifting um, a human effluent back to the countryside. Huge expensive scheme, which never happened. And because part of this it was a kind of slightly Malthusian, it wasn't a Malthusian, but a Malthusian concern that the, the, the city was drawing all, the, all of the energy out of the countryside. It had to be returned. Otherwise, the soils would be depleted. So uh, alongside of this thinking about clearing up the cities was this concern within the... the, the the um, chemical or biological thinking of the time associated with people like Liebig and Molshot and others about the nature of encouraging production in the soil. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a kind of richer field. So in, in some senses, the, you know, the, the, the rather withered discussion we have today about public health is in some ways a step backward from the, from the possibilities um, which were being specified then. Now, I just wanted to look at some of the kind of what we call definitions to show you how, the, how this changed over time. Um, what did public health mean in the 1848 <coughs> Public Health Act? As I said, the health of the public. Now, the professions, professions or medicine self was to be prominent. And here's, uh, I'm not a big fan of Hamlin's writing, but I think he's got it right here. Um, uh, Unexpectedly, public health legislation has it had evolved into an instrument of local democracy. The new boards of health had the opportunity to undertake a wide range of infrastructural reforms that would improve health, but also make the community more attractive, efficient, and comfortable. So it's not about, as the expression is today, public health doctors delivering something. If you look at the Department of Health literature, they're delivering this, they're delivering that. It is actually much more open in terms of what public health is. Uh, Shattuck, um, Lemuel Shattuck followed um, the, the, the discussion in Britain very closely. He was a bookseller, a statistician in Boston, uh, kind of a Renaissance man type. And you can download this essay, no, not an essay, it's, it's a set of recommendations, report of a general plan for the promotion of public and personal health. Um, uh, somewhere off the internet. A, a mate of mine actually has the original copy. It's a wonderful thing to hold. And here he is. If you can call this a definition of public health, if you like, but it's one which is kind of shrouded in the wisdom of the ancients. So, so here's this little piece of work, which is wonderful. Takes you from the Greeks right the way through to Boston today and argues in a very, say, kind of enlightenment style um, what he thinks public health is. And it's interesting. We believe that the conditions of perfect health, conditions is really nice, either public or personal, so makes that division between the public and the personal, between the collective and the individual, are seldom or never attained, though attainable. And, and he goes on. And he goes on to the bottom. If you look at it in red at the bottom, measures prevention will affect infinitely more than remedies for the cure of disease. Uh, this particular sentence made him an unpopular guy. Right? This proposal to the legislature uh, of the Commonwealth of uh, Massachusetts was opposed by the medical profession and dropped. Didn't arise again for several decades. I mean, you have the inter 
inter, inter, interregnum of the war. Uh, but it's an interesting one. Uh, so, you know, here's a kind of view of public health, which is about the community, the state, taking action together. It's not essentially a medical issue. Actually, for the avoidance of, of obviously, entirely useless medical therapies at the time. So, let's move on. Winslow, again, um, uh, Winslow was uh, president at one point of the American Public Health Association, not a doctor, uh, a biologist. Um, and his, his it, it comes out as a definition, but actually it's a definition of tasks, of what public health should be. To achieve public health, this is what we do. Right? It is not, this is what public health is. It's a process of the things that you do in order to achieve it. And it's an interesting one. If you look through it, it's a list, basically. Sanitation comes first. Education is there. Right? Organisation. Social machinery. So, he, you know, it's taught, it really is kind of very preliminary ideas of thinking you, you, you have to have social security. The implications is you have to have a national health service, which he obviously, this guy, is obviously in favour of. And then, what's the purpose? To enable every citizen to realise his birth rate of health and longevity. So there's a kind of a natural justice story in there. Now, it's interesting, why am I mentioning this? Partly because, if you go onto the websites of many local health departments around here, and they ask this question, what is public health? The science and arts promoting and protecting health and well-being, preventing ill health and prolonging life for the organisation evidence. So actually this is an attenuated form of Winslow's definition. Absolutely and explicitly. This was the definition adopted by Aitchison, uh, Donald Aitchison, when he was CMO, when community doctors were rechristened directors of public health, uh, uh, doctors in public health. So what this lacks is public health's tasks, or, you know, the stress on the tasks, and also, to use modern language, social, economic, and human rights, which was partly what the, ori the original kind of public health thinking through Shattuck and Winslow was about. They weren't considering they were fighting germs, they were fighting the conditions, to use the expression. Hence, I have to say, the title of our book is also Conditions, Shaping the Conditions for Good Health. So it's not about delivering things, it's about the world you occupy and share. You know, so that's the picture which I'm trying to give. And, you know, so when you look at something like the Faculty of Public Health, I was made an honorary member of in my strange way, uh, they define all these areas of public health practice. And what you get is a narrow, medically defined, I have to say, without any disrespect to people here, academic view of, what, of public health tasks. Where is sustainability? Where is economic development? Where is action to promote on inequalities or the promotion of rights? They sort of dropped away. Right? The idea that public health should be there to change society is the sort of, you know, we have to present ourselves in these professional scientific ter terms. Because if we don't, we'll be ignored, basically. So I'm saying that actually that the notion that this is all about biomedical programme and then you chuck stuff extra at it is actually also false. And I'm saying that you actually there are really four traditions. I call them the conventional, I'll explain what I mean in a moment. I call these the sanitary, environmental, biomedical, which we've discussed, techno-economic, and social behavioural. So I'm going to give you a little kind of little vignettes on each. The biomedical, as I said, according to Winslow, uh, the origin of the definition of uh, public health that we still use today, uh, the biomedical response to disease developed in two forms, population-based and more individual-oriented. In fact, you know, we, we tend to think, looking at the 19th century, and there's lots of books on it, say how ineffective medicine was right the way through to the, towards the end of the century. Um, and, but the example is vaccination. But actually with vaccination, it's interesting that you really do not get any specification of real effectiveness until... Um, just before the First World War. Before that, there are campaigns against uh, vaccination. Um, someone like, um, the, probably one of the leading scientists of the 19th century, Alfred Russell Wallace, wrote a book opposing vaccination. No, this is one of the chief scientists, the, the, the other originator of the theory of natural selection. Right. So, 
you know, vaccinations are controversial territory, and yet it's the mainstay of the biomedical model of population health. And of course, you know, what you do have is people like uh, René Dubot, uh, French, moved to the States, the inventor of the first, uh, the creator rather, creator, how do you create an antibody? Um, discoverer, if you like, of the first commercial antibiotic, warning about antibiotic, antibiotic resistance. Um, and it's interesting, one, it, there was a conference which he spoke at in the early 1950s um, on antibiotics being first time used in the uh, food industry. And now I've just written a paper on antibiotics in food, and by weight it's around 80% of antibiotics used in the US are used in animal feed. All right? So the collision between uh, the profitability of farming, you know, the productivist approach, volume matters, and then the other side of this is that what kind of biological implications that draw out of this thing which has happened only since the 50s. So the focus may all be on GMOs in terms of the things we saw for area. <laughs> I would be really quite concerned if I was in America and that volume of antibiotics being poured into pigs. Right? Basically it was there, you read the documents of the 1950s, it's about, it makes them look better and increases their weight. That's it. So anyway, let's... Um, and of course, if you apply rigorously the biomedical model, what does it do about these food-related diseases like obesity and diabetes? Well, nothing. I mean, apart from reasonably successful um, bariatric surgery. Uh, you know, it's funny, working with the Academy of Royal Medical Colleges, the, uh, the, uh, the head of the academy was absolutely in agreement with uh, Tim and myself where we met them. Actually, it's to warn people we're not going to solve it. Okay? So the biomedical model only has its place. It's not a criticism of biomedical model, merely to say that things have their place. So that's what I'm going to do. Social behavioral model. We think, oh God, you know, health promotion feels very weak. Uh, but in fact, it's probably as old. It proceeds in many ways effective biomedicine. Um, and here's the variations of it. Uh, you know, having been involved in advising over change for life in Britain, uh, you know, and now it's basically become re responsibility deals, you know, or as some people might say, irresponsibility deals of using commercial marketing to affect change. For whom, I'm not sure, or in what direction should be questioned. But health education, nudge, the popularity of nudge, which is a completely disreputable idea, which we can talk about if you like. Um, the techno-economic model, which is never spoken of, except to be attacked, the attack by Simon Stretto, who's an historian, on, uh, on this sort of approach, saying this is neoliberalism, I don't agree. It's actually the roots are found in Malthusian or uh, economics. And it's the idea that somehow, if you look, there's the OECD chart here, which shows the relationship between per capita economic growth and population growth. Uh, it's it, you know, it, it, economic growth does not equal health. But unless you have the growth of nutrition, you won't get the growth of population. I mean, it, uh, you know, the, I mean, as Darwin says about Malthus, is really is there an argument about this? Um, uh, where's the drawbacks? The drawbacks is when you go to extend this model beyond just the simple relationships in a way. And one of the drawbacks is. Uh, found in uh, Robert Fogel's work, where you see he sees this as an endless projection for everything getting better, as if growth, growth is all that matters. Right? So you just need continuity. So he doesn't see the drawbacks. I mean, the acknowledgement of something like obesity isn't on the picture, really. So um, the stories like Joel Machia are very interesting on looking at the interrelationships. I mean, some of this is a techno argument, you know. The growth of technology solves the problems. Mm, I'm not sure. I put in Jay's disinfectants there because uh, this is the first active disinfectant, and it's uh, it's symbolic to me because it's relatives of mine invented this stuff. Uh, so I like putting it in. Um, so these traditions are conventional in several senses. One, 
they've shaped existing thinking, either as a point of opposition, like the techno-economic model. This is what we don't want, say, people in the biomedical kind of orientation. But there's a pecking order, as I've said. So now we're in a world in which the dominant, there's a dominant explanation is a biomedical one. If you went back to the 1850s, it would be a sanitarian argument, not a biomedical model. So there is a kind of historical pecking order moving backwards and forwards. Uh, they were pragmatically developed and undirected. These things happened. Yeah? It's only, you, know, you only reconstruct their path of development because we're here in the present and we create a story out of it. But actually, it could have gone many different ways. That's the way history works. But in many ways, if you're looking at it in terms of either systems thinking or complexity theory, these models are very underdeveloped. Uh, as Tony McMichael says about epidemiology, the focus is usually on the proximal at the expense of the distal. You were still looking at and trying to... If there's a, an unthinking about the, the way in which relationships come together uh, and of that notion of continuity. And, but the conventional for me is that all these traditions consider the health of, of nature, if at all, in terms of the impact of human health and not the reverse. What is the impact of putting all these antibiotics into nature. What is the impact of saying to people, you should eat more fish? Right? Just take up that for a moment. Eat more fish, it's good for your diet. And then there's no fish left. Okay? So, uh, you know, we have to look at the two-way street of doing these things. Or it's better to live in towns and therefore you do need the countryside. All of these things. And whereas we can have this discussion in the 20th century about the effectiveness of this, more and more... Tim and I argue, you cannot have discussion in these singular terms in an age of global warming and diminishing biodiversity. You actually absolutely need a, one, a model which encompasses the fact that we are, not, we are part of nature and we're not separate from it. We're not gods who uh, live above and beyond nature. We're part of it. You know, we're in... We're in a series of transferences all the time at the biological level as we walk around. And if we don't believe that and don't know that, we're in a, in a fantasy world. So, okay. And even radical accounts suffer from this. So this, again, this was the one was was in this document in uh, Warwickshire Public Health. They used this to explain, oh, there are all these impacts on public health, but they really are interested in the biomedical side. And then you have this rainbow of health. But in fact, it falls... Um, according to the two things, the anthropogenic yeah. issue, uh, and you know the environment is simply out there somewhere. Uh, we're not, you know, we should be on a platform of ecosystems, and they're not. The path, the ecosystems should be underneath this group of people and in relation to it, not out there, You're not uh, in the distal world. And the other thing is that these are layered. This is a bit like a heliocentric theory of the universe, almost. And if, that's a later version of the model. And in conversation with Margaret, she actually tries to link them all up because I think she was now responding to this critique. Or we could start off with this position, as Tim and I do in the book. So it's a different view of... It's a different starting point, really simple. But human health and ecosystem health go together. Okay? Very simple. That's a starting point. But what you don't have is if you start off the 19th century with that position, you actually have a kind of biological reductionist model, one strand of which you end up with eugenics and so on. Another strand actually ends up with pragmatic philosophy, Mead and Dewey and all those people who are absolutely influenced by Darwinism, but actually put it in much more social terms, evolutionary terms. Um, in, in the social field. So we thought, actually, you know, public health aids by actually integrating the material, the biological, the cultural and social, the institutional on one hand, and the lived reality. You know, I'm a sociologist, you know, I, I'm interested in people's lived experience of the world, but also the way in which institutions of all kinds, from the hard to the soft, fashion and shape that experience of the world. But the way in which we're also biological creatures... And we're also involved in energetic transfers. All of those things matter for public health. So this is, a, if you like, a simplifying lens on that complexity. So what does ecology mean in our model? Uh, obviously, you know, probably, that ecology was the term invented by Heckel. 
but it actually has the same roots as economy. Um, uh, Darwin uses the uh, expression the economy of nature, and that's drawn from Linnaeus and Carl Linnaeus and people before him. But it's, it's his old roots of thinking, it's in Adam Smith, that we're dealing with a natural economy. Right? People like Smith um, and, and people of that time were bioeconomists. Right? They don't think of the economy being separate and purely in people's minds. Right? It's a world which is real, in which you move, which you have impact. It has weight. You know, the idea that somehow it's all solved by putting something into an app, you know, would be stupid to them. Because it's a real embodied world of nature. And everything we do has a natural counterpart to it. And the idea of pulling them apart would be absurd to them. Um, and in a sense, we're trying to restore that. And so when you use expressions like social ecology, which is frequently used, it's oxymoronic if you think about it, because ecology is about nature. So it is nature without nature. Right? So you have a no social ecology. So you, you have, have something starts off and then you take out. And then that's supposed to be an advance. <laughs> because it's not dealing with the reductionist biological view of nature. Well, we don't have to have a reductionist biological view of nature to have a kind of a conspectus on these things which addresses the kind of the evolutionary nature of things because it's an evolution of mind and body in environments. You don't have to make that kind of Descartian separation at all. And in a sense, that's the infection of Deweyism in this particular model as well where you do not look for separates, you look for continuities. So it, um, ecological thought, ultimately, to me, is about understanding interrelationships, complex system dynamics, including feedback to nature, and including humans which are part of that nature. Um, and so uh, it, we're critical of a compartmentalised, one-dimensional view of interventions, or interventions which ignore feedback, or persistent, unsustainable structural conditions. So, so there we are. Human health in the 21st century has to be considered in the context of ecosystem health, and in the long term, of course, they have to. They're inseparable. Must be. Um, so we're looking at it in these ways. We're not opposed to any of these models, apart from attempts to their incompleteness and overextension. Uh, and we think that we should operate together and actually give due deference to to. You know, I mean, you know, we, the sanitary environmental model isn't just for uh, kind of I don't know Africa or Asia, right? It applies here as well. In a sense, the argument about smoking in neighbourhoods is the old sanitarian model applied to human behaviour in settings. Uh, we think of it as something else, but basically, that's a version of it. Okay. So the other point, and I'll get to food in a moment. The transitions is thinking of the long term. And in fact, it's already found in the public health field. Uh, the first probably form, formulaic use of the notion of a transition is in the demographic transition from the writers from the 20s and 30s. That uh, nutrition transition, Popkin, biological transition, well, kind of the biologists have, have colonised that territory and it, it, it's, it's obviously within, within Darwinism. But we wanted to look at other transitions which affect public health, economic, urban, cultural, energy, and democratic. And now, how does this thinking in focus affect the way we look at the food system? Now, I thought, we'd, I thought well, let's, let's look at energy. Just pick up one of these. Uh, this is a rather complex set of information I put on your screen. Uh, what is the energy transition? Well, it's actually the shift from low energy resources to high energy resources. Uh, the, uh, Wrigley's wonderful book, Poverty, Progress and Population, actually makes the point that if you, you know, we talk about the Industrial Revolution, and in fact, it's an energy revolution. Industrialization would not have happened without the use of high, having high-energy resources to drive it. Absolutely. That another way of conceiving it, we thought it was a bit complicated, the te terminology, but there's a whole set of writers in what's called a social metabolic transition, which are really very interesting. Some of them call for steady-state economies, another a shift 
in socio-metabolic regimes, which means a regime like the one we're in, which is a high-energy society. Right? How do you shift to another type of regime which reduces all of the energy within the system and all of the chemical flows? It's not just energy, but the chemistry of this world. And, of course, the, re the early public health arguments about energy were only really about the pollution and where it failed. Sanitarianism was enormously successful when it dealt with pipes, right? building sewers. But on the issue of energy, it utterly failed. So we see that primary energy production has increased enormously, but then we come up against it by the end of the 20th century that the balance of benefits and costs, which has always been variable, right? um, began to hit us with a vengeance. Um, let's look at where it happened on the food system, which is just a nice thing from Vaclav Smil's book. And it's just a nice demonstration of the way which energy has affected farm production. It's, so, a farmer in 2000, wherever he is in the, in the uh, Great Plains, has 600 times the increase of energy available to him than his great-great-great-grandfather or grandmother uh, back in 1800. And of course, when they used the farm animal then, it was uh, a renewable resource. This is non-renewable. Okay. So when you see the pictures of these machines, I was in North Dakota in October, going against these prairies. It's interesting, you have the farms there, the fracking sites there, where a wind turbines there, hydroelectric power there. So all of this energy is going on in the landscape. It's a wonderful, interesting thing to see. So how could we ever begin to speak about sustainability in farming without, because when you have such dependence on fossil fuels? You're not going to drive a harvester with batteries. You know, We're not going to have a hybrid vehicle driving these machines. And yet that is central to our food system. Absolutely central. On our farm, we have vast machines. We've actually substituted the, you know, people have gone, we have the machines instead. Okay? So when you say to me about having sustainable farming practices, what, I'm going to go out there with a spade? You know, we're going to get horses back? So let's raise some of these issues of, of, of the time we're in and our utter dependence on this sort of system. And then you have the dependence of this being transferred into a whole socio-technical system of growth in this, where farmers are competing to grow and produce more and change the matter of, which, of what farming is about. So you look at someone like, what's the name of it, Tyson, right? the biggest uh, meat producer in the US. It doesn't call itself a meat producer. Do you know, anybody know what it calls? calls? No? Uh, <laughs> well, have a think. What are they producing, in effect? Are they producing animals? They're produ they're, uh, Chickens. Hmm? Chickens. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you in a moment. Let me just put this on the side. Why do you think about it? What do you think they're producing? All right, let's see. They call themselves a protein company. All right? It's a protein company. So these are, these are simply kind of Newtonian kind of creatures. These are machines, organic machines, which get sliced up and come to you as protein. It's a kind of sobering account, really, that the language describes what the mode of production is. And if you look at this one, this is from 1950 to 2000. I also travelled around north, uh, northern New York, where all the local farms are closing down, where the... I was talking to an organic producer, one of two farms left in Sullivan County, and all the rest are closed. They cannot compete with California. Large-scale mass farming, and if you look, if you go to Southern California, or you go to Oklahoma or somewhere like that, you have vast, vast, having seen them, it is difficult to describe them, they're feedlots for animals. So the picture in our minds of farming is of animals and grass and stuff. Forget it. They're all corn-fed, right? So it is more like food ink, if you've ever seen it. And so how, the question is, how do you make, given these growth, given that so much of that product is used for things like biofuels, they produce too much, look at these figures. 
And yet the USDA says that after 1980, chemical and energy inputs actually fell. It's an interesting one. So, so where is the growth coming from? Some of it is GMOs. Some of it is the biological mechanisms. Some of it is seeds and so on and so forth. So it's a mixed, it's an interesting picture that, that they've held these things still. So how is public health thinking addressing energy transitions? As I said, in historical actions, poorly in terms of thinking research well. And it's interesting, if, I, I, uh, if you think of someone like uh, Alfred Lotka, uh, um, he, uh, he's, he's a public health guy. He actually develops the first account of anthropogenic climate change right, back in the 1920s. Okay? Uh, so it's within public health that these ideas are formed. And now it should be public health which is grasping them. And he introduces the concept of exosomatic and endosomatic energy because he's seeing these things as energy systems. Evolution for Lotka is energetic, following Boltzmann. Right? It's energetic. So energy is at the root of thinking about uh, food production. There's nowhere. Obviously, there's others. Water. There's other things. But energy is there because it is the it is the central spine of the socio-technical system driving changes in agriculture. So we have to sort out if we're going to talk about ecological public health. We have to really think through the energetic elements of it. And of course, now if you've read the wonderful book called Energy Glut, you know, mismatched theory, if you like, actually it goes back to Locke's thinking. It's a reworking of Locke's ideas. The other, of course, is the language of transition as a nutrition transition. Popkin's concept of the 1990s, late 1990s, draws upon the, um, the epidemiology, wonderful epidemiologist uh, uh, Abdul Omran, his theory of the epidemiological transition, which follows McEwen's account absolutely for the relevance of nutrition and population change, which ultimately goes back to our friend Thomas Malthus. So there's a continuity in thinking of trying to restore a relationship between, between population change and, and understanding what the soil can offer to us and how we manage the soil, which is the basis of what we eat. And I suppose the energy is the sunlight which kind of makes things grow. So the link between the energy and the nutrition transition is... Uh, is this notion of the relationship between endosomatic and uh, exosomatic energy. But, as I said, the story is not one of energy and, and diet. It's also the other things. It's the cultural transition. Mass marketing affecting what we think a normal diet is. Uh, the biological tradition uh, transition. Of the bio biological inputs nature, the democratic transition. A focus on power and control, governance within the food sector, basically. You know, and you're grappling, you peer people here are grappling with that notion. How do you have notions of citizenship and control and the diversification apart from these corp giant corporates who basically thousands of farmers there, a small number of cargills distributing their product around the plant, and then all these retailers who actually make the money out of it because the farms have to be subsidised if they have any ethical policies towards their animals. Uh, frankly, that's the way it works. Otherwise, they're machines. Uh, an economic transition, the shift from primary production to retail and marketing. So you have a tiny portion of people working on the farms, and all of these other people, the biggest uh, employment sector in Britain is the food industry. It's just that you don't have many people actually producing food. They're processing it, and they're selling it, and telling you what a diet is. All right? Marketing industries. So, recap. Let's pull it together. The impact on the social metabolism, scales of inputs, chemistry, water, energy, the impact on biological processes of nature. One example we gave, we could have talked about GM. Thank goodness we managed to pull it off here a little bit. Food losses and waste. Uh, the studies show that something like 40% of food in the US is wasted. You have basically oversupply, and the oversupply is of this intensification. It's happening, it has happened in, in Europe, uh, but there are measures perhaps. Uh, the impact of food regimes on health and disease, from poisoning to chronic disease. The governance issues, the impact on culture, impact on employment, which I've mentioned. 
So what would a food system look like in the light of ecological public health? So I've argued that we have to look at an evolutionary perspective, not just of evolution as such at the biological level, but the evolution of systems, institutions, ways of seeing, which, you know, like neoliberalism, which is a story of the way things should happen as the way of, and only partly of the way things do happen. So it's a suggestion. People use the expression normative. I generally don't know what normative means, but in this instance, I can't get the picture. So if we were doing things according to an EPH model, we'd have to want to shift towards an energy light from production input, reduce inputs. Consequently, farming might look like a mixture of the old organics, but more precise deployment of inputs. You know, I was with, a, uh, with our science man looking around the fields at the weekend, and uh, you know, we're actually looking, taking a big field, we actually look at the variations across the field and our supply of inputs differentially when we're doing planting and doing all the other things, actually to get them much more precise. And it's all about soil facility and trying to get, you know, to minimize the amount um, of inputs, herbicides, and so on. We actually want to actually cut that out. It, we used, we tried being organic, but actually we had a lot of problems. So if you like, this is a kind of more of a stewardship farming model, but it's scientific. Uh, shift to shorter, less energy intense supply chains. You know, now people, oh, we can, I'll avoid the discussion I was going to. Removal of the mass biological inputs, uh, the shift towards low meat diets or no meat diets. That's a big discussion. I mean, the climate change discussion there, but if you look at the nutrition transition which is happening in the Far East at the moment, it's from a much lower base. The US. It's the largest probably meat eater, 150 over 100 in terms of its RDA, in terms of meat consumption. In China, it's, it's going up very considerably. It's the hope of the, of the food traders that, that this is happening. Uh, sustainable diets, whatever that means, but that's part of the discussion. How can you readdress people's needs and expectations around what they're eating? It's... It is massively difficult. Maintenance of fish stocks, food habits. How do you, how do you make these adjustments? How do you engage with the public, which has been brought in, brought up, on this new way of seeing food? It's about entertainment. It's about this. It's about that. It's about style. It's not about generally about nutrition, and it's not even about sociality, like. I mean, I think there's a really an evolutionary argument in the sociality of food. So, so I'll come to the crunch points for me. The shift away from high energy, more intensive farming raises questions about farm manage, farm outputs and food costs. In many ways, it mirrors the debate in Germany, which, uh, which foreign policy magazine called The Green Elephant, because of the costs of putting more sustainable, renewable energy into the German system is causing real difficulties for German manufacturers. And so once you start go down that path and be more serious about renewables and sustainable and ecological perspective, you start having problems. There's no doubt. Right? This, is, this is not Pol Potism, but it would soon be described as that. Uh, the growth model, this implies, might benefit employment. We'd have more people working back on the land again, for sure. But it places farming in a similar position to Japan in terms of them trying to grow their own rice, which is enormously expensive. Or Switzerland with, a, with their animal herds, which are enormous, enormously expensive. Okay? Food would get considerably more expensive in this model. There's no way out of it. So this kind of price consumerism, the world would alter. So I, you know, I, I think, golly gosh, we're recommending these ideas but what would be the impact of putting them in? It shows you how far we're all locked into the logic, a path dependency of an energy-based farm system. Yes, there would be countercultural groups and people who download these apps. Uh, but who are the other social and political actors or the processes that will bring a society without growth, to use callous, uh, uh, the, the, the dilemma of people writing in ecological economics? So, as there was with over-school meals, you know, where those pictures in the papers of 
of the mothers shoving chips or whatever rubbish through the fence, you know, there would be a popular revolt. You'd have the Sun, you'd have the Daily Mail going on about food, energy, fascists, and all of those things. So if you're interested in this, it's going to be a real fight. And it's a cultural fight in the main. Because actually we can talk about another world where we do have a more of a... To actually get back to thinking around a world in which we have some... And we're all hypocrites. I'm a hypocrite. I take planes and, and I drive cars. You know, to get back to a world in which you are in balance and not using up a planet is going to be really, really tough. The task for the 21st century of getting into some ecological balance. So the path to ecological public health is not smooth because if you think, you know, I was just interested, I remember the, uh, the, the boss of Citigroup saying, you know, we're still in the world of all those financial instruments until the bottom falls out of it, you know. While the music's playing, he said, we're still dancing. And that's going to be in the way in the food system. You'll have absolute opposition from the food system until the whole thing breaks down. And then you've got a problem because you've got nine billion mouths to feed. <laughs> so it's going to be an interesting time. Resistance to system change is strong. And actually the comparison is with the resistance to decarbonisation of economies, but larger in many ways. Uh, neoliberalism and economic growth, which is seen, you never get an argument about against growth. It's such a taboo subject, to be honest. It is the taboo. The idea that you be against, it is like saying that you are a professing to madness in public to say you're against economic growth. So the implications for a policy conversion down this path are daunting. And I just think in, in, you know, in the last few years, you know, I was involved in sort the foresight's obesity strategy and now even how quickly it was reversed by the current incumbents in government on the responsibility deals. So long, sadly pessimistic, pessimistic tunes over rules. Even so, all I can think is we're in honourable company. All of these things are possible, I just want to put it more starkly. There are lots of mitigating things we can do, and we can make the arguments. And I just thought it'd be quite nice here, you know, to recall who's on our side. Big philosopher guns to cheer us up in the midnight of the soul. And, uh, and one, of them, one of my heroes is J.S. Mill, who during the fierce period of economic liberalism pressed the need... And, you know, the first to come up with the notion of the stationary state economy. Right? And it's based upon agriculture. It's based upon not destroying the countryside to make space for growth and what happens when you lay everything to waste. And uh, so I sincerely hope for the sake of posterity that we humans, he says, will be content to be stationary long before necessity compels us to. Actually, he could be speaking right now. Yes. Okay. Isn't that wonderful? And this is, well, 1850 or whatever, 46 actually. It's astonishing to me. So when I talk about the long view, and we think that we moderns have got the answers today, actually, old uh, JS was actually posing the problem for the 21st century 160 odd years ago, which is astonishing to me. I'll finish there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.